This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined today by my co-hosts, Tablet senior writer, Leah Leibovitz. And a very merry to you. Merry whatever. Get out the festive, the, the poll, what is it? The, the airing of the grievances around the Festivus poll. And Tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Good morning. A frailic in Hanukkah. Yes. Hanukkah with joy and uh, and freedom and love and peace. My kids are off from school today, so I, I'm in the basement at the New Haven studio at Argo Studio North, and the kids are upstairs. Sid has put together a day off schedule for them, which will involve family Pictionary at 4 p.m. and keeping them stuffed with sweets until then. <laughs> a Christmas miracle. So while I, I see your kids in the next room, I raise you here in Argo Studios South in Manhattan, do you know who's next door in the little studio right now? Oh, t- who's who's there? Tell me. Mr. Steve Martin. Stephen Martin himself? I'm the I'm, jerk. I'm not cool with that. Like I'm a, no. I'm really freaking out right He's now. He's really losing no, 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 no. his cool. Um I kind of want to run and sing. Me. I'm picking out a thermos for you. <laughs> oh, so much. I mean, I have grown up with Steve Martin more than almost anyone. Guys, you should be canceling our show right now and just going and like st- put pressing your faces to the screen of the other studio at Argo. I'm sure he would love that. This week, in addition to stalking Steve Martin from three feet away, we start off a conversation with Rabbi Ari Lam, who is special advisor to the president of Yeshiva University. And he's going to talk to us about the true meaning of Hanukkah. He's going to go deep into the Hanukkah story and talk to us about why it's not the holiday we think it is. That's our, that's an interview we've done already, and it is bonkers, awesome, great. And then later in the show, we'll be speaking with actor Clive Owen, who stars as an Orthodox Jew and musical prodigy in the upcoming film, The Song of Names. And we'll also be talking with uh, the film's composer, Howard Shore, who is an Academy Award winner and the composer of the score for The Lord of the Rings. And in many ways, he has given us the soundtrack to our movie going live. So that's a a great conversation. Uh, Stay tuned for all that. First up, we got to catch up, the three of us. You guys are in the New York studio. I am here in New Haven where the mantelpiece here at Oppenshire Manor is slowly accumulating the holiday cards that we get. And I, I wanted to take this to the J. Crew. Is there a more goyish tradition on earth than a holiday card? <laughs> well, especially at Yuletide, right? I mean, the, the late December holiday card basically is the definition of goyish. Now, that said... I love them. I love them. I love them. We get lots of them. We get them from people I don't know about. I mean, there's always the question of like, I say to Sid, who are these people? Or she brings a card over me. He's like, these must be friends of yours. And then once in a while, it's like somebody we actually both know and love and, and are catching up with. I don't care where this came from because I appreciate it and I love it. And I love seeing pictures of everyone's like little cute families and my Dressed actual- matching red sweaters with a dog. Ever since I lived with Kat O'Neill- Sophomore year of college, everyone knows Kat, my best friend. Oh, yeah. Kat. I have been getting the O'Neill family Christmas card, and it is my favorite thing in the entire world. And as they've sort of grown up and gotten married and there's been babies, the, the card just sort of get the pictures just get so much more. There just are more people um, on the card, and I love it. And, and it's like sometimes it's an update on the back. It's changed over the years. I always get a, like a handwritten Happy Hanukkah, which I appreciate. Mm. From oh, Kat, that's so culturally sensitive. From Nydia O'Neill. It's my favorite. Yeah. It's, it's like how I know the season is here. I love it. We used to get, and I think this tradition seems to be dying out, those holiday letters, you know, where people write you the long, long, oh, like the double-sided, single newsletters. space letter with the family update. And I loved those. I mean, what did I love about them? Mocking them, making fun of them, because there's no way to write it that you're not kind of bragging. And I just thought they were terrific. They were my favorite things in the world. You know what? Put those guys out of business. 
like Facebook. And the fact that everyone's relatives, everyone's second and third cousins are on right. Facebook together, I actually don't need to know what the Rothhouses in Denver, who you'll hear about next week, are doing because I see it every single day on Facebook. I love it. I see their grandkids. I see everything. So there's a way in which those are sort of outmoded. I love them. And, you know, because we can brag about our accomplishments literally every day on social media, you almost don't need the, like, Catherine's in, in grad school. Like, you don't really need to tell people that. I don't disagree with you. However, Judging on the two or three that I still get, they really do serve a different purpose. I mean, what the letter is, is it is the curated look at what that person thinks is important from all of the hundreds of daily updates. And it, it really does tell you something interesting about them. What these actually serve as, I mean, yes, you send them out, but I imagine if you've been sending them out for 25 years, you have a copy of each year and you actually have basically yes. a family archive. And that's really meaningful. So here's what I would like to do. I am, I'm going to go rogue here. I haven't run this by the two of you guys, but I hope you'll go with me here. I want to see people's, I want to see their holiday cards. If you are Jews who send out um, uh, Goyesha New Year cards at this time of year, I want to see those cards. And I especially want to see people's holiday letters. So if you scan them and send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com, I'm going to pick out my favorite thing. It could be a card. It could be a holiday letter, but just something that gives me the most pleasure. Maybe it's a card because the dogs are dressed in matching pajamas. I don't know. Send them into unorthodox at tabletmag.com. And my favorite one and I'm the judge, okay? You guys can do tie breaks if I can't decide no, I, myself. No, I think this is really a you thing. I'm very comfortable okay. with that. <laughs> You're comfortable leaving with this me? This is your world, man. I'm going to send a copy of the newest Jewish encyclopedia to my favorite bit of holiday correspondence that you guys submit to us. Are you guys joining me here? I'm in for that. I mean, but Mark, you know you've basically um, signed on for another task by bringing this up, which is that... So your wife, Sid, puts together this amazing photo diary, basically, of the past year that she sends around. And I'm one lucky recipient of that email. And I love to see all your, like, angelic blonde children throughout the year. What you actually <laughs> need to do is you need to write our unorthodox annual update. That's right. Like, Liel flew to, from Basel to Phoenix. And by the way, I think we need to pose in, like, matching red sweaters. I'm in. By, by a fireplace. <laughs> Good deal. It's also like not religious. I mean, this it's like a secular New Year tradition, right? Or from Christmas, which at this point feels very secular. And then adding Happy it to Rosh like Hashanah. a- Happy I hope you repent for everything you've done to me. Oh, let's make those cards <laughs> for next year. Right? It's Please, a Yom, it should be a Yom Kippur card. It's, yeah, and it says basically like- You have a lot to be sorry for. Yes. <laughs> Are you, have you Forgive been nice? you? I don't think so. Have you been nice or naughty? <laughs> It should be a checklist. Like, I apologize to you for the following. Like, I have sinned by bad language. I have sinned by impure thought. You just get to check down the whole the whole confessional and send it out to people. Exactly. The whole list. The whole acrostic. The whole mother-loving. So, uh, from the most mirthful thing we could talk about to some sadness, uh, we want to acknowledge the murder in Jersey City of four people, uh, two of whom were Gentiles, two of whom were Jews, who seem to have been targeted uh, in what at this point looks to be an anti-Semitic attack. We mourn the loss of all four of those lives. And, um, you know, yet another case in which anti-Semitism uh, and, and hatred uh, coming home, coming home to America. The weird thing about this shooting, honestly, is that these are Jews who don't look like us, right? These were Hasidic Jews shopping in a kosher store and and living their life in a way that doesn't necessarily look like yours or mine. And so there's a way in which, you know, after Pittsburgh happened, I'm not comparing the two attacks because obviously, you know, Pittsburgh was horrific. There was 11 people who were killed and that was the first time this had happened. But there was a way in which the wider Pittsburgh community could immediately stand together with these Jews and basically say, you know, change the Pittsburgh Steelers logo and say Pittsburgh strong and everyone could really get behind the idea that we are all the same, right? We are if you if you come for some of us, you come for all of us. But with this shooting, 
because these are religious Jews, you almost don't get that same sense of public outpouring of of understanding. I mean, obviously, it's horrific the way you anytime you hear about a shooting, you just are overcome with 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 grief about the fact that this has happened another time. There's a way in which the wider community in the tri-state area and more broadly, I don't think it's getting the same play almost because these are different people and from the wider community and also the Jewish community. I think that's completely right. And I kind of want to add one more angle to it, which is the way this has been covered. So after the Pittsburgh shooting, uh, we knew the name of the perpetrator and his motivation within really like a span of two hours because it fit this kind of snug narrative, right? Oh, white supremacists shoot up Jews. Like this is something that we all understand here because the shooting was perpetrated by black Israelites, which is a group that uh, is classified as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center and includes offshoots that are deeply, deeply anti-Semitic, people were sort of like, oh, hold on, this doesn't fit this kind of traditional mainstream media narrative, so we're going to go with motive unclear. And and you've had people, including Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, including Joy Behar on The View, Days later, even after we knew the identity of the shooter, saying this was white supremacy. But the thing that bothered me most, I really have to read this because it, it, it keeps on like boiling my blood. This is how the New Yorker magazine covered this attack. Ready? The headline is, Untangling the Hate at the Heart of the Mass Shooting in Jersey City. Here's the subhead. Did an influx of Hasidic residents in the Greenville neighborhood spur two assailants to embark on a shooting spree that left six people dead? I mean, can you imagine any other minority group in America being like, well, they moved into the wrong neighborhood, so you can kind of understand why people are upset and killing them. This is like just despicable to me. So, Liel, I'm not totally with you there on this. When you go on and read the article, it's a muddled but fairly sensitive inquiry into the question of like, what is going on here? And there may be something there. It might be that this is a case of a culture clash between two groups, one of which has arrived more recently and is causing, as when groups move in, right, as when immigrants move into a neighborhood that's not used to immigrants, there will often be tensions. That doesn't mean that bigotry towards the group that moved in is is permissible or is acceptable. And certainly uh, murdering them isn't acceptable. But I think the writer was just trying to get at the fact that, look, if you want the backstory, the backstory may be that there's been immigration into this neighborhood of fellow citizens, but nevertheless, a kind of immigration into a neighborhood that had just been overwhelmingly black and now isn't just black. So I wasn't as bothered by it as you were. I think you were being a little bit uh, I mean, how would you have written that subhead to say the thing that we know is true, which is that when Hasidic residents move into a black neighborhood, there are tensions on both sides sometimes without triggering you? I would have just simply said, you know, anti-Semitic scumbag murders Jews, which is what happened. Yeah, but we're journalists. And there's 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 also that's not just what happened. Like there's also truth there. That doesn't mean it's the, the Hasidim's fault. It's 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 not. I mean, when people move into a neighborhood and aren't welcomed, it's not the fault of the people who move in that they're not welcomed. It's the fault of those who don't welcome them. But I think we still can talk as journalists and, and as thinkers about that reality. Maybe you're right. It just it just strikes me as as looking for, you know, additional sensitivities and covering it in a way that literally had any other minority group in America been targeted, it would not have been the headline on day two of the attack. But I also think there's a way in which these Hasidic Jews are not understood by people, right? Like they're not being treated the same, it feels like, as other groups. And I, I want to say like within our own community as well. I mean, there's like, oh, they're insular. Oh, they have their own systems. And it's actually 
problematic, right, that we can't just say these are Jews. Stephanie, I, I completely agree. And often the worst perpetrators are Jews or Jewish journalists in some case. I mean, one of the great examples of this recently was the, the Jewish audio innovator, uh, Ira Glass, who on This American Life just a few months ago did this, uh, this piece describing a parade in Crown Heights that really, to quote a good piece in the forward, painted Hasidic Jews as aliens. And the forward pointed out that Glass said, quote, walking up to Hasids on the street felt like walking up to people from another planet. People had a general air of hostility or at least suspicion to outsiders like me. They waved me off. And then this this guy, uh, Label Baumgarten, wrote in the forward, look, that's extremely, <laughs> extremely anti-Semitic. Uh, one of the reasons we might have waved you off is because we're used to the media coming in and mocking us. And, and Glass listened to it. He ended up tweeting out, this writer at JD Forward is entirely correct, and I'm in the wrong here. Othering indeed. Good point. I won't make this mistake again. But that just goes to show that even people who are really sensitive to the media environment, who really want to appear uh, sensitive and woke and aware, when they encounter very religious, ultra-Orthodox, Haredi, whatever you want to call them, Jews, they often just, they, they just think it's okay. It's like, to them, the way that it's okay with Scientologists, the way that it's okay for some people with Mormons, you know, they figure, well, they're mockable, right? And um, so I think, I think you guys are absolutely right. So before we move on to greener pastures, let's just agree, we're all Jews, no matter what we believe, no matter what we look like, and we all stand together now and always. If we don't do that, no one else is going to assume that on our behalf. Amen, Selah. So guys, the season is upon us. It's Hanukkah. And we think we know this holiday. We think we have it all down, the story of a little you know, band of brothers who fought and won. But this is actually sort of a fascinating, complex holiday with a lot of meaning that I think really kind of resonates today. So to sort of help us get to the true meaning, if you will, of Hanukkah, we summoned Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam, special advisor to the president of Yeshiva University, to really get us in a holiday spirit. Our guest right now is Dr. Rabbi Ari Lam, who is a special advisor to the president of Yeshiva University. Hello. Hello. Thanks Shalom. for having me. How are you? I'm amazing. The most special advisor. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. All right. When we talk about Hanukkah, here's the story that comes to mind for most of us. It's a ragtag, cheerful band of misfit warriors who stood up and defeated an evil empire and it's kind of like Star Wars, only set in ancient Eretz Israel. That's not the whole story, is it? Yeah, so it's 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 definitely a long, long time ago, just not in a galaxy far, far away. Right. But that's the not the one... even when you fly Alal. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. As much as it feels that way, as much as the food seems kind of similar. Yeah. But you know, the story that we're told—that's the first story. Plucky resistance fighters fighting back against tyranny. That's the one story, and there's truth to that story. There's another way of telling the story. And when I think of the other way of telling the story, I always think of a great Christopher Hitchens column from 2007 in Slate. It was called Bah Hanukkah. And <laughs> <laughs> classic Hitch. Because that's what we needed, more discontent in, in Jewish circles. The, Go ahead. The war against Hanukkah is raging. Yeah. And he characterized the holiday of Hanukkah as a celebration, I quote, a celebration of tribal Jewish backwardness. And as much as every single sentence in that article is riddled with factual errors, I kind of love it because you know what? It's kind of right. So in order to understand the story of Hanukkah, you really need to have seen Die Hard. And in particular, the iconic Hans Gruber line. And when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. 
this is the world that the Jews of this period and every other people from Greece to India are living in. They're all living in the world that Alexander the Great had conquered and his successors had built. And when Alexander conquered the world, it wasn't just a military conquest. It was also a conquest of culture and language. And that's why historians call this period the Hellenistic period, because Alexander brought with him the language and the culture and the society of Hellas, which was the ancient word for Greece. And the Greeks who conquered the world saw this not just as sort of a happenstance of, you know, victors writing the history book, but they really saw their culture as totally superior to every other culture. And what Alexander was doing was bringing civilization to the unwashed backwaters of the Middle East and of Asia. And this included the Jews. And so they step into a newly acquired, shall we say, territory. And what are some of the orders of business? So Alexander conquers the world in like the 330s before the Common Era. And by the time we get to the Hanukkah story, it's about 150 years onwards. Now, for most of this period, the rulers of the Hellenistic world who ruled over the land of Israel kind of tolerated the Jewish people. It changed hands between rulers a bunch of different times. Sometimes it was ruled from Syria, sometimes from Egypt. But people basically tolerated the Jews, but they thought that they were sort of backwards ruffians who were uncivilized and barbaric and all that sort of stuff because they had this weird culture and they didn't like to hang around with other people. And they had all these traditions and these texts and this faith. It was strange. They weren't, if you will, ruthless cosmopolitans. Exactly. Right. Exactly. There was a you know, cla- classic Jewish dog whistle, you know, not ruthless cosmopolitans. Mm-hmm. So the Jews at this point begin to, over the course of 150 years, some Jews begin to feel the impact of this kind of cultural imperialism and this insistent universalism. And they begin to feel that, you know what, maybe there is something to this critique. Maybe Judaism is just uncivilized. Maybe it's backwards. Maybe it's a little embarrassing. And so we begin to find evidence in this period for a group of Jews that are called Hellenizers. The Hellenizers are Jews who kind of find this whole Judaism thing a little bit embarrassing. And so they undertake a whole series of... This is an ancient phenomenon of which we have absolutely no example today. What you have are these people who sort of find Judaism and its traditions embarrassing, out of step with society, incompatible with sort of a a universalistic cosmopolitan ethic. Nothing we we would possibly think about today. Mm -hmm. And so they start to introduce all sorts of changes into Jewish practice, or they start to attempt to do away with certain traditional Jewish practices and learning. So one example is, um, one classic example, and kind of humorous, is circumcision. So the men among the Hellenizers sought to reverse, in some cases, their circumcisions. And then, you know, which is as if circumcision itself wasn't enough, you had to go through another procedure. They start to try and reverse the process of circumcision and then subsequently do away with the practice entirely. Why? Because the Hellenizers wanted a proper, cultured, uh, civilized gymnasium in the heart of Jerusalem next to the temple. Because the temple was kind of, you know, it's nice, but it's a little bit weird, it's a little bit strange, out of step with modernity. Right. All we those need animal a- sacrifices. Yeah, gross. We, we, need, we need an equinox. Yeah, barbecue was fine, but if it's a holy barbecue, God forbid. So we need a gymnasium. And in a gymnasium, you have to be naked. And if you're going to be naked in the gymnasium, it wouldn't do to look too religious. Right. You know, you don't want to look too religious. So those are examples of the kinds of things the Hellenizers do. Now, through this historical serendipity, at exactly this time, the ruler of the land of Israel, the non-Jewish king, was the Hellenistic monarch by the name of Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV, at exactly this time or a little bit afterwards, embarks on this costly and disastrous war in Egypt. And in order to pay for this expensive boondoggle, which was a failure, he ends up going back to Jerusalem or heading back towards Syria, crossing through Jerusalem in disgrace. And as he's passing by the temple, as so many 
uh, monarchs before him had done. He sees a beautiful building with holy treasures and Jewish wealth, and he says, this is mine now. Right. So he walks into the temple and he takes everything. Now, the Jews, understandably, are outraged and horrified. And one thing leads to another, and there are skirmishes, there's violence. Um, and Antiochus ends up deciding that rather than faulting for this entire conflagration, rather than faulting his own greed and his own military follies, the problem, he says, is Judaism. Right. Judaism as such. And so he decides to abolish Judaism or to take steps to repress Jewish practices. Like, for example, you can't observe the Sabbath. You can't uh, circumcise yourself. You can't observe Jewish holidays in public, Jewish learning. He goes hard. Yeah, it goes right after Judaism. And instead, what he wants to replace it with is this cultured worship of Zeus, this sort of universalistic cult that everybody across the Hellenistic world, they could keep their own traditions. But as long as it was organized around some sort of central principles that everybody agreed upon, we were good. The problem was Judaism, because Judaism didn't want that. So this provokes what we know as the beginnings of the Hanukkah story. And it's at this point that basically a group of religious conservatives stand up and say, we need to defend Judaism and its faith and its texts and its traditions. Now, how do these guys fare with the other Jews? How, how do these, exactly. as you say, religious conservatives look at the Hellenizers? So it's at this point that the Hellenizers really need to choose. Because, you know, what they could have argued until now was that, well, you know, we have our Judaism and it's fine. But you keep it in the home and it's, you know, it's 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 traditional and we express it every now and then. But we don't really need to be too involved with it. And when we're in public, we can be cultured and acculturated. But when Antiochus and the religious conservatives come to a head, ultimately the Hellenizers are forced to choose. And it's a choice that Jews across the generations have constantly had to make, which is when push comes to shove, at a certain point, you really do have to choose between the Torah and Aristotle. And bear in mind, Alexander the Great was actually a pupil of Aristotle. Right. So you really do have to choose. Do you want your traditional faith? Do you want your national culture? Or do you want this sort of universalism, this Greek cosmopolitanism? You have to choose. And the Hellenizers ultimately make the only choice that they could make, and that is they choose Antiochus. And so the Hanukkah story is a story of religious conservatives standing up for their particular national story and traditions and faiths and, and faith and values against sort of an imperialistic universalism. And the bad guys in this story are first and foremost the imperialistic universalists. But within the Jewish people, the bad guys are sort of, you know, acculturated Jews who found Judaism, frankly, a little bit embarrassing. It's really fascinating to hear it put it quite like this, because I think most of us here today celebrating Hanukkah don't stop to think for one second that, that the people we're really cheering on are people whom had they stepped out of the story and into our real life, we would be like, you're too bearded, too weird, too religious. We, we want nothing to do with you. And Christopher Hitchens really had it right. This is a celebration of tribal Jewish backwardness. I'm just very proud of that. Right. Now, it, it is important to emphasize that the Victors of the Hanukkah story, these religious conservatives, they enthusiastically became a part of the Hellenistic world that they were fighting against. But the crucial thing to remember is they did it on their own terms. They wanted the Jewish story and Jewish values to be driving their engagement with the wider world around them. They didn't want it to be imposed upon them from the outside. They didn't right. want their own culture and values to be judged by the standard of some sort of universalistic set of values that really just meant Greek culture. So it's not as if they sort of abstain from the world around them and cloister themselves, but the, it's so critical to remember that they're religious conservatives. These are people, and the way the Hanukkah story starts, the classic powder keg that gets ignited at the beginning of the story is a scene set in the city of Modian. It's a city just a little bit outside of Jerusalem. And there, as Antiochus is attempting to impose 
his anti-Jewish program on the populace, he attempts to recruit as his allies from amongst the population of Hellenizers and people whose highest wish was to just be part of the powerful, dominant... The, the elites, if yeah. you will. Yeah. Right, right. If, you, if you want to put a point on it. Mm-hmm. And so there's this scene that our ancient sources depict where there's a gathering of the population led by the elites in Modian, and the Hellenistic governor recruits forth one of the leading citizens of the day who's going to show everybody just how backwards Judaism is by sacrificing to Zeus in the middle of the public square. And there's a priest who made his living in Jerusalem named Mattathias, in Hebrew Matityahu, who's standing in the town square of Modian, and he's watching all of this go on. And he sees what is essentially Jewish complicity Mm -hmm. in erasing Jewish culture in its ancient homeland in the land of Israel. And he looks around. And he assumes that somebody's going to do something. I mean, surely we're not willing to just flush a thousand years of tradition down the toilet rather than do anything countercultural. And he realizes no one's going to do anything. And so he actually steps forward and he kills the guy and kills the guy who's about to sacrifice to Zeus. That's the act that ignites the Hanukkah story. That's what we're celebrating an when act, we celebrate an act, of, an act of civil war, basically. Yeah. That's what we're celebrating when we celebrate Hanukkah. Now, Christopher Hitchens was horrified by this. was horrified by this. I think if we're going to tell the story of Hanukkah, we should tell the story, the classic story of religious liberty and resistance to tyranny. Those are very important, but it needs to be accompanied by the equally true story of religious conservatism, of particularism versus universalism, of a sense that it's important that a people be guided by their story and by their values. And when we participate in the world around us, the way we participate in the world around us, as we should and as we must as a Jewish people, when we participate in the world around us, it needs to be on our terms. It can't be imposed on us by other people. It needs to be guided by our values and our story. And so when we today, including many of us who have you know gotten quite comfortable with, with the dominant cosmopolitan culture in which we live, read the story, give us, give us like two or three takeaways. Give us, if you will, the real message of Hanukkah and, and how this new understanding might uh, change the way we look at it and lead our lives. I think the dominant metaphor, even if it's fallen a little bit out of favor recently, I think for, for the good, but the dominant metaphor for how American society is supposed to work is the melting pot metaphor. We're all supposed to just sort of congeal into a common, you know, sort of Americanism and leave our past behind and embrace this sort of new identity. That metaphor, the melting pot metaphor, is more or less, with obvious differences, what the bad guys in Hanukkah are fighting for. Now, what are the good guys fighting for? It's not that they're fighting for the right of everybody to just be apart and fight against each other for eternity. But I think the lesson that we take away from this is that when people participate on behalf of the common good, when people fight for shared values, they have to bring their own personal stories in it. It needs to be guided by their own values and their own traditions. So when we talk about creating an American story that we share, it doesn't mean erasing our past and it doesn't mean setting aside our differences in the name of some sort of common, lowest common denominator. It actually means investing in our in our own selves and in our best selves and in our traditional selves, understanding that our past actually does impose obligations upon us in the present. And when we bring our own story into our contemporary American identity, what we're doing actually is creating a story together, not by erasing our own individual identities, but by bringing them into the present. So that's takeaway number one. Takeaway number one is the melting pot is bad. Takeaway number two is, first of all, just the bedrock importance of religious freedom and the way in which 
ultimately it can be in tension with a universalistic ethic. Yes. And if you're going to insist on universalism and if you're really going to go all the way for it, you're going to end up where Christopher Hitchens is, which is that Hanukkah is actually a story where the bad guys win. Right. And religious liberty ultimately means insisting on being a little bit different from everybody else and having your own values and, and bringing that into the public even. And so ultimately, this, that Hanukkah is a story about how those two things are in tension. And so are there any traditions that you would recommend we adopt in addition to the gelt and the dreidel and the candle lighting? Any traditions that we should adopt to really put us in the correct mindset for so this holiday? The answer is Absolutely. I'd say the bedrock thing that people need to understand, in particular in this age where the highest good is self-creation and self-identity, the importance, first of all, before we even talk about any particular tradition, and I have some in mind, but the most important thing is just a basic reckoning with the idea that your past, something that you didn't volunteer for, but the story of your, of your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, those things actually place moral obligations upon you. And leaving them behind. Life doesn't begin with you. Yes, Nor exactly. does it end with you. Exactly. And, and in that respect, the story of Hanukkah is actually a story of fighting against the idolatry of the self. Mm -hmm. And so the basic takeaway is that when people approach the story of Hanukkah, they need to think about the obligations that their past imposes upon them. Now, that can mean different things for different people. What does it mean for you? That's a question you should be asking on Hanukkah. But the one specific thing I would advocate for is that to the extent that the bad guys of the Hanukkah story essentially stood for the proposition that Jewish tradition and texts and faith are basically just embarrassing and we should hide them away, I think the best way to celebrate Hanukkah is by exploring our traditions, and in particular, by exploring our texts and our values. You know, if it's wonderful to give presents, it's wonderful to give guilt, all those things are great, I do them myself. But this Hanukkah, maybe sit down with your children and crack open a Bible, crack open a Talmud, crack open, uh, you know, a medieval Jewish text. You can find all these things readily in great English translations or, or in the translation of any language that you're listening in. You know, crack open one of these things and read them with your kids. You might be surprised by what you find. Amen to that. Ari Lamb, thank you so much for explaining Hanukkah to us. My absolute pleasure. Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> fan of this here podcast you know it kind of often feels like having this great conversation with your friends that's sometimes funny sometimes meaningful and jews being jews full of interruptions so look we love having this conversation on air but we figured we should try having it in real life as well why not that's what jews do and so on friday night january 3rd we are thrilled to host the first unorthodox shabbat it will be an amazing evening at the Freehand New York, the fancy, fancy new restaurant from Gabe Stolman. It's on Lexington Avenue and 23rd Street in Manhattan. We will light some candles. We'll recite some blessings. We'll enjoy an amazing vegetarian meal by the superstar chef. And then we'll just spend the evening talking and being together the way a community should on Shabbat. So look, the meal is free, but seats are extremely limited. So... To make sure everyone has a fair shot at attending, we'll be running a lottery, choosing participants completely at random. So if you want to join us for a very unorthodox Shabbat, which we really hope to make a tradition, go to bit.ly slash unorthodox Shabbat. 
all lowercase, to enter yourself plus a guest. And we really look forward to seeing you over the challah and the wine. L'chaim. Guys, I am so excited for this event. This was Liel's idea. And Stephanie and I were immediately like, yes, we want to have a Shabbat dinner with our friends, with our friends. And uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's do this. And then I think we're all hoping that there will be many more to come in many places wherever the J Crew lives. We really, really love you guys. Guys, it's the J Crew. Just start, start using right. it. <laughs> we're no longer the J Crew. From now on, we're the J Crew taking over America and the world. We will plot the conspiracy that night, January 3rd, bit.ly slash unorthodox Shabbat. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. So I have been lucky enough to speak twice now at Temple Shari to fellow Israel, a wonderful congregation in South Orange, New Jersey, which is my marital homeland. And there's a really, really innovative rabbi there, uh, Rabbi Daniel Cohen. And after my event, as he was characteristically, you'll soon find out, going to get me a, a case for my brand new iPhone that I had just gotten, I cornered him with my microphone and I asked him a few questions about being a tech-loving rabbi. So... You're wearing an iPhone watch, the Apple watch, what is it called? Apple watch? You are not like a regular rabbi. You seem to be What's like- What's a regular rabbi? Oh, like the guy with the robes, like what we think of in the dictionary as a rabbi. I can that's, pretend to that's be. That's true. But you're also very into tech, right? I'm very into tech. How do you sort of like merge and link those two things? Because you, you, you review tech products, right? I am your a partner gig. in a technology blog, yes. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a tech house. My father worked for Bell Labs, AT&T for my entire life. So our whole community were all tech people. And most of the, my peers growing up actually went into tech. For a long time, it was just, I was the rabbit and I just liked my toys. And then I started commenting on a, on a site and then reviewing for them, writing for them. And then I actually co-owned the first iPhone app review site. Whoa. Um, when the iPhone finally got apps after its first year. And I've been writing for and a partner in, in this blog, Gear Diary, for a bunch of years now. How does it merge? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes if I need something for the synagogue, believe it or not, I actually will review something so I can have it for the synagogue. Like a gadget. But it's, yeah, but it's but for me, it, it's just, for much of the time, it's just so different from what I do in my rabbinic work that it's just a nice little island for me. And then it merges once in a while. For a while on the site, I was doing uh, reviews of, of different cool things that connected Jewishly. Mm -hmm. So actually I reviewed a 3D printed kippah someone had given me, which is really Did cool. Did it look regular, normal? It was this plastic material. Uh -huh. It was really cool. Or I had somebody 3D printed a yod for me, which was really neat. What's so I wrote about that. Yod, what, what is a yod? I got to hand it to you. That's a good question. <laughs> uh, the ritual item for reading from the Torah. 
and somebody had printed one for me and I used it for a while. But then the really cool thing for me was one of my students becoming bar mitzvah was really, really into tech and was like, this is so cool. I really love this. I said, great, because you're going to use it at your bar mitzvah and then it's yours. Wow. So that's the other thing I get to do is like, it's a nice meeting point also for me with, with, with our the, kids. With the youngs. Yeah. The idea of a 3D printed yod is like so not what the yod started out as, right? You imagine these like ancient items, but this is the ultimate. But isn't modern. that what we've always done in Judaism? We've always used the newest technology. We've always, the technology has always been part of what we do within the Jewish community. And that's part of, I think, what's helped us to evolve and hopefully to remain relevant. Um, so I don't think it's that far afield to be able to actually merge those things in what's happening today. I also, one of the benefits of being a reform rabbi, I use an iPad on the Beamer. I mean, I do Kindle books. I don't do a lot of, of dead tree books. And so for me, my iPad is, is a book. And I use it. I started using it because of a wrist issue. And holding the book was difficult. But it just, for me, it's just part of how I do everything. So I use it on the Beamer. And at first, people thought it was a little weird. And I'm sh sure that guests often do, but they rarely comment now. Why not? Because we had a scroll, and then eventually we had the printing press, and then we had bound books. Like, that was a huge technology leap. So why is it such a huge, unreasonable leap to go from that to the what today is a book in 2019? What's the best app, your favorite app? My favorite app? Jewish or not. Are there good Jewish apps? There are some very good Jewish apps. I actually reviewed Jewish apps for a while uh, for the Jewish newspaper. Um, what is a good, what are my favorite apps? I mean, now we've got Shulcloud for our synagogue database. We just went over to that. That's really cool. Can the synagogue members access that? Yeah. And that's yeah. like your, where you get like the memos and notifications, stuff like that? Yeah. That's amazing. Um, there's so many. I don't have a really good answer for that, but Jewish apps, I mean, I've got, what do I have here? Jewish Rock Radio, Pocket Torah. Uh, the podcast app is excellent because I can get unorthodox on it. Oh, yeah. So that's my, fa that's that's favorite. That's my favorite app. app. Wait, this is a, this is a folder favorite. called Jewish. Yeah. And how many, how many, that's two screens, three screens of, of Jewish apps. Wow. Sure. Too many, I can't answer that question. It's a great question. I don't have a good answer. Well, I do want to thank you because the first time I spoke at your synagogue, you saw that I was carrying an iPhone without a case and you went up to your office and came down with two cases, one of which I used until it broke. And then the second one I have on my phone right now. So thank you for, you're in charge of like souls and also. I'm, I'm happy to help equip you with that. <laughs> so let's go get a case for your new phone. For my new phone. We'll do a Shahakianu. <laughs> thank you so much, Rabbi Cohen. That was my interview with Rabbi Daniel Cohen. You can follow him on the Twitters at DM Cohen and hear more of his tech thoughts and rabbi thoughts. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? Okay, great mailbox this week. From the Facebook, we get this post. I'm looking for your honest input. I attended a choir concert at my son's school recently. We live in the Midwest, not a lot of Jews. And there was the standard fare of jingle bells and dashing through the snow, but also Silent Night. And then there was this song called Mary, Did You Know? And here's an example of the lyrics. Mary, did you know the dead will live again? The lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? Did you know your baby boy would one day rule the nations? That sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. At teacher conferences, I brought up my discomfort about this very religious choice of songs for a public school. And the teacher told me there was nothing wrong with the songs. She said that the reference to baby Jesus was fine so long as she was not advocating a position, but just teaching song techniques. I suggested it was insensitive and alienating to the diverse population. She said I was the only one who had complained. She said she was not changing things and she disagreed that the songs were inappropriate. Am I overreacting? Well, my dear Facebook friend, 
I have no doubt that Liel and Stephanie would have different points of view, but I'm handling the mailbox this week from Oppenshire Manor basement level. And I have to say, and I'm fully prepared to get angry mail from uh, lots of our listeners. I know this is not a popular position among Jews, least of all progressive liberal Jews like me, but I think you are overreacting. I don't actually see the harm. This seems to be one of those things that is a kind of manufactured sense of offense. We know we're supposed to be offended because we believe in the separation of church and state. And um, and so we hear this and we recognize it's violating some sort of principle that we hold dear. And I do hold that principle dear. But here are two things to think about. The first is that a lot of great art is religious. Uh, Michelangelo's paintings, religious. You know what? Uh, actually, the Iliad and the Odyssey, religious also, but with pagan pre-Christian gods being the ones being discussed. You know, the, the Norse mythology is religious. Lots of things are. And we're particularly sensitive to Christianity because in contemporary America, Christians are proselytizing us. They're trying to change us away from being Jews, whereas ancient Greeks are not. We're more sensitive about those. But you know what? We can't not listen to Mozart's Requiem. We can't not listen to Bach's Mass in B minor. We can't not look at the paintings of Michelangelo. We can't not read John Milton paradise lost. And I think that there is a secular way in which to sing Christmas carols. And I kind of agree with the teacher, which is that if these are being presented as art, not as religious instruction, that's okay. The other thing I would say, and this is something I think about in my own parenting, is that, look, we Jews are a minority people everywhere in the world except Israel. And not just a minority people, we are a tiny minority people. I mean, we are arguably 2% of the American population, and most of those Jews are in five or six cities. So once you get away from those five or six cities in the United States, Jews are you know, half of 1%, a tenth of 1%, a hundredth of 1%. So we can't run from that fact. And part of what we have to do as parents is tell our kids, look, people are going to wish you Merry Christmas. People are going to have you singing Christmas carols. And as long as they're not being bullies about it, be happy for them that they have their traditions and then tell them about your own. And if our children know about Hanukkah and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Jewish history and Shavuot and Sukkot and Jewish cuisine and Jewish literature and the short stories of Bernard Malamud and the movies of Adam Sandler and Shakshuka and whatever your menu of Jewish culture and religion is, if they have a sense of ownership of that, then they can say, well, I have this great tradition and you have this great tradition. And the one that I hear in my school, which is overwhelmingly Christian, is your tradition. And that's okay. So I think that in some ways, children encountering Christmas carols in school is a reminder of the work that we have to do as Jewish parents, uh, a minority people in a Christian majority land, and it still is a Christian majority land. And we have to do that work. So I do feel your pain, but I actually, you asked us, you wrote in and said, am I overreacting? Well, you asked the Facebook group, but there you go. And I do think you're overreacting. So I hope that you're okay with that. And I look forward to all the mail from people who disagree. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mark, we did an interview that you actually got for us, and I have never seen Liel and Josh so starstruck in their entire life. Yeah, hang it on us. Sure. Mark, we walk into a room (laughs) at Sony headquarters. The light pours in perfectly on the well-chiseled face of this most gorgeous human being I have ever seen in my life, Hollywood star (laughs) Clive Owen. And Stephanie, like this kind of enterprising (laughs) journalist who always like is on top of it and has questions, just looks at and be like, hi. (laughs) I I asked one question in this interview, which is, so your accent. Right. So this was to talk about this new movie that comes out on Christmas, and it's called The Song of Names. And basically in it, Clive Owen plays a Hasidic Jewish violin prodigy, a virtuoso. And the film was composed by Howard Shore, who is behind masterpieces like Lord of the Rings, The Departed, Twilight. And we talked to the two of them basically about, first of all, the scoring of this this film, which is obviously such a musically influenced film. And we talked to Clive about what it was like to take on the role of a reclusive Hasidic virtuoso. And the amazing thing ab- about his role, like he really disappears into the role. I mean, you know, walking in that he is going to be playing this Hasidic Jew. And then you see him and A, he's still incredibly handsome, but B, he's a Hasidic Jew. I mean, if you didn't know that this was Clive Owen, you would think that they found someone in Borough Park and just like, you know, schlepped him onto the set. So basically you're ready to sign him up for the next season of Shizel. Oh my God! He he's ready to sign up. I think the the head of yeshiva in Lakewood who comes to visit them in Jerusalem. And now we present to you our interview with Clive Owen and Howard Shore. We are here today with Clive Owen and Howard Shore, the star and composer of *The Song of Names*, a film about friendship, betrayal, and reconciliation that unfolds over two continents and a half century. Could you guys start by telling us a little bit about this film and how you got involved? Robert Lantos, the producer, introduced me to Francois Girard, whose work I knew from Red Violin and the Glenn Gould film. And I was a big admirer of those films, so I was really happy to collaborate with Francois. And we worked together for close to two years on the performances you're seeing on screen, which is including Clive's uh, performance and the cantorial scene. All of those were gone over in a lot of detail with uh, Francois and myself before shooting, and then I wrote a score. So those of our listeners who are not nerds like me and discovered you with Cronenberg probably know your work best from Lord of the Rings, where, you know, it's it's the music is, is another star of the film. It's so sweeping and epic. 
And here we are on stage and it's, it's compact, it's searing, it's very emotional and intimate. How did you, when you needed to write this song, which is right, the song that goes along with the names of, of the victims of the Holocaust so that their names may not be forgotten, how did, how did you get into that mindset? How did you research that? The scene in the film is 1951. And I knew that sound from the 50s because I, I grew up in the 50s in the synagogue. My father was a very religious man. So I knew that sound. So I was just really trying to recapture that from my childhood. And the way I did it was going back through cantorial singing is uh, from an oral tradition. So I was really going back and listening to old recordings. Some of them go back right to the beginning of sound recording. And all the cantors know these recordings. That kind of sparked my imagination about it. And then I worked with Bruce Cohen and Judith Clerman. Uh, there are two uh, scholars. Bruce is a cantor at the Brooklyn Heights Synagogue. And they kind of guided me through the tradition of the use of the modes and how, uh, how the prayers were sung and gave me enough confidence to be able to write my own piece that incorporated the ideas of the film. And when you're sitting on your couch listening to these ancient cantorial records, was there like a Proustian moment for you of memories of your father and your grandfather you haven't thought of for ages, all of a sudden unlocking feelings? Yeah, of course. I mean, it brought me back right uh, to my childhood and it brought me closer to my father. And it kind of renewed my interest and faith in Judaism. And as they say in the film, when you're a Jew, you're always a Jew. Uh, but the religion, if it gets too hot, you can take the coat mm -hmm. off. So I put the coat back on and spent two wonderful years in the world of it. And it brought me back to uh, my faith, really. So we'll be seeing you in synagogue on Friday. Yeah, you might. Is what you're saying. Yeah. So, Clive, when did you realize that your next starring role would be a Hasidic man? Francois came to me with the script and... Uh, I didn't understand why he wasn't going after the other character who takes everybody through the movie. I thought, why are you coming to me? I was the first port of call of any actor. And, and he said, because of, you know, the journey of the movie, we have, you know, we spend the whole movie tracking this guy down and then we have to find the right person at the end of the movie. And I loved his work. I knew Francois worked and I, re I was really impressed when I met him. And I knew it would be an awful lot of work for a part that sort of arrives towards the end of a movie because there was the violin playing and I knew it would be a big leap. Um, for me, and I was very concerned that if I did it, that it would be convincing and it would be proper and authentic. And I trusted him and he told me that, you know, he would look after me and, and, and we would do that. So I was so touched by the story, so moved by the story. And uh, I felt, uh, you know, I wanted to make that leap. So we'll get to learning to play violin. How do you learn to, to embody this role? How do you prepare for a character that is so distinctive in his appearance and his way of life as an Orthodox Jew? I, I mean, I just did what, what, you know all the research that I could and made sure that I was as prepared as I could. And I was obsessed about looking authentic, you know, that it didn't look like Clive Owen in a costume. And it, I was worried about that. So I was worried about the whole look and that it felt real and authentic and that I buried and then inhabited it as well as I could so it didn't look there's nothing worse if it just looked like it was a sort of 
you know, put on things. I mean, as a universe-leading Jewish podcast, let me tell you, you passed <laughs> in flying colors. I mean, Thank I knew you. it was going to be you because I, I you know, I've received the, the screener and the email and everything. But but when you first opened the door and I see not just the look, but the whole mannerism, the kind of, you know, gruffness of, uh, or not gruffness, but the kind of demeanor of a man who's who's who has God, the weight of God on his shoulders. Mm. It's like, oh my God, this is a, this is a Hasidic Jew. That's a, uh, I'm, very flattered by that. I, I, I you know, I, I worked and researched and looked at it as much as I could and just, you know, I, I wanted to sort of bury myself in it and f not feel like it was, you know, anything was sort of put, put on the top, that it was, you know, that I was bedded into it, so. Was there a point of entry for you? So one thing that you figured out about this character from which you said, okay, from here I could start to unlock who he really is. I think it was actually something in the script about somebody who, gives up huge talent to sort of lose themselves into their faith and bury themselves into their faith and that becomes and that the self becomes less important i think that was the key to me so that this him turning up at the door at that point in the movie is you know is a, a shock of a previous life almost and having to sort of reconcile what what happened way back then but somebody who who loses this the sense of self who's got huge talent i, f I found that there was something really fascinating about that. Is that a thesis that you buy? Because I mean, thinking of, of your whole career, and I'm, I'm a big fan of, of many of your movies, I'm thinking of movies like, you know, Children of Men. It sounds like you're always at this crux of trying to explore, you know, individuals versus community, faith versus disbelief. Where, where do you stand on, on these questions? I'm always looking for a character in conflict, because I think that's where drama is, that any, you know, any, any character who's struggling with something, you know, um, there's, that just instantly means that there's subtext, there's things to play, there's layers to play. So, you know, and, you know, I, li I like to challenge myself. You know, taking on this part was not an easy thing to say yes to because, I, you know, the, I, I was concerned about doing it, but I, I wanted to do it. I love the story so much. I thought it was so beautiful and I felt I might be able to do something in it. But uh, it's not not a part to take on lightly, really. Because you also know that there's a part in which you get punched in the face in a small car. <laughs> that was kind of shocking, I got to tell you. Like, I kind of thought it was going to come, but when it came, I sort of, you know, jumped it, back. Yeah, it's important because it's a, been a, a bottling and a buildup of the whole movie has been sort of, to, you, you know, I think it's always good in drama when you have something simmering and you take the lid off and quickly put it back on again that shows you the, the power and weight of what's lying underneath. It's also interesting because your character is a Polish-born, London-bred, Crown Heights-residing, Yiddish-inflected <laughs> Hasidic Jew. The accent was an issue how in terms of... How you figure it out? It was just about pitch, really, about how far to go. And, and also to do that in tune with the two younger versions of me because, mm -hmm. you know, that there's an element of losing the accent over a period of time. There's the fact that I've been living in Brooklyn for a long time. So it was like looking at all the flavors and then similar to the look, you know, for me, the beard, the clothes and everything, it was hugely important that that felt bedded in. The same with the voice. If that starts to just, you know, it needed to feel as natural and as easy and not overdone and over effortful because then it, you just look at an actor. So what do you listen to to prepare for something like that? You, for that, we kind of created it. A lot of Polish, because mm -hmm. that's the origins, and some key sounds that track through all three of us, that all of us adhere to. You know, just very, very key that that is a rule. Everything else is a little more flexible, but that, that those key sounds and that key thing there, it, you have to adhere to. And um, I actually listened to a lot of Polanski, believe it or not. 
yeah. of, of him of his personally. Accents. Yeah, of talking his interviews. Accent, and right. Yeah, I thought, you know, I, I just like the tone and the pitch and where that sat, really. Also speaking of a man on the run, right? I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. that is the voice I listen to. Speaking of sounds, I, I watched this brief uh, little clip that we were sent and was sort of delighted to see that you chose to record this quintessentially Jewish uh, opus in a church in Montreal? Yeah, the, the violin solos are recorded in Los Angeles uh, by Ray Chan at Village Recorder, and the score was recorded with the Metropolitan Orchestra in a church in Montreal. Uh, the church is a, a place where recordings were made with Yannick, Yannick is the uh, conductor of Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, and also he had created this Metropolitan Orchestra in Montreal and done other recordings there, particularly a Bruckner uh, cycle, which I was listening to and I was interested in. So it really came out of the idea of the space, the acoustics of this particular church for, and use of it for recording that we could record there. I'm so fascinated by this. I, I, I want to know, how do you turn off the Howard Shore of it all? I mean, how do you come to something like this and avoid what I assume is a temptation to just go like, I have all this talent, I could create this like sweeping thing that will be my vision, but maybe not work so well with the movie. How do you, how do you keep tethered well, to the I've story? Well, I've been writing music since I was a child. And I learned to write with a pencil and a harmony and counterpoint. So really, my whole life has been, you know, really in composition. I played a lot of instruments, but I put them down and kept the pencil going. So uh, however I express the ideas, it really is coming through that visualization on the page of the pencil. It really has to do with the visual art of it and, wow. the, and the oral. And you keep it after after you're done composing? you keep all the originals? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. I also imagine there's something similar to that profound insight about losing the individual to the community. You are not going in there as power tour. You're going in there to create something more universal than that. Writing film music is being part of a collaborative process. You make good films by balancing all the elements of the film, the editing, the cinematography, production design, acting, directing, music. When you balance all those pieces beautifully, you create art, you create something great. Howard told us that he had some residue after the movie of thinking of faith and, and his father, etc. I'm wondering what, what of Dovidal you took uh, away after... So you shaved off the beard and shooting was done and everything was over. I think it was that. I mean, I think it was just that whole idea of ego and self and talent versus giving all that up for something more in a way. That's what I took from it. That was that for me was the sort of when you arrive and meet him at the end, that's what he's got to carry. That's, that's what he's got to bring into the movie, really, is somebody who's left that previous life that we've been watching way, way behind. Right, and also that we watch develop, uh, because the character is played by three actors, of, of whom you're the third, right? We watch develop from this very brash, obnoxious kid to kind of a dashing but brooding young man to someone who really has accepted the onus. It seems to me to be the hardest thing in the world for, for a movie star to do, no? To, to do what? To walk into, into a movie and knowing that your role is a resigned man, right? As a man who runs away from exactly that kind of... Well, you say that, but then, uh, you know, as you said before, I, I, I've played parts like that before in a, in a way. Like when you said that, it made me think of children and men again yeah. and thinking there's a guy that's sort of 
you're playing a guy that's taken people through a movie who's kind of given up. Like that's a, an unusual thing to do. And I remember in that movie, I, I, I didn't see my way in. There was no scene in Children of Men that you go, oh, there, that's where I can really act. <laughs> there wasn't a scene. There wasn't, and I, so I talked to Alfonso, I was like, I don't know what my, the, usually you read a script and in this, there's a clear scene, there's the camper van scene. Mm -hmm. And you go, that is a great scene to go and act. That, that is where you can go and do your work. In a film like Children of Men, it wasn't, but after endless meetings with Alfonso, I realized that I was just the vice through which to see the film and the thing was to not get in the way. That's what I, I approached that movie, don't get in the way of the movie, don't act. Like, be open and be available and let Alfonso show us the world. And um, so it's not, you know, I, I do take on these parts that are not, you know, sometimes you read a part and you go, well, that's an obvious meaty part that everyone will go, there's good acting. I'm not often attracted to that. I'm often attracted to something else. I mean, I've never been an actor, but it seems to me there's probably nothing harder for an actor to do than, than this skill, no? But it's a bit, you know, the, people appreciate different things. You know, I've just done, come off doing a play in London and there's, a, there's certain people who appreciate the skill of acting. I'm not really that. I'm not a great fan of skill for skill's sake. I'm a fan of feeling and people being impacted by something, being impacted by a piece of acting or a film or not necessarily to sit back and be impressed and go. So, you know, when, but some people love to see an actor working. They look at it and they go, oh, that's skill. That's really great acting. I'm just a fan of the actors where you don't see it. You feel it. And Howard, I think what I've just said sort of goes pretty far to describe the way you approach music. You know, the, the sort of, I don't want to say subservience, but a sort of tethering of the music to, to the emotional. I think a lot depends on the subject and the director. Sometimes I like to work around the edges of the frame, particularly with a lot of the Cronenberg films. But other stories, you want clarity and music can help with that. So it really has to do with the type of storytelling if you want to want the clarity or whether you want the audience to be making up their own uh, minds about certain aspect, the narrative of the story. So when we have non-Jewish guests on our show, we let them ask us a question that they've always wondered about Judaism. And I know you've done a lot of research into being the most extreme sort of form of Jew, but I'm curious, like, do you have any questions? Do you learn anything that you were just like, what? What are your takeaways? No, because I sort of, I went and I sat down with uh, Jonah, the guy who plays the middle me, and we sat down with his rabbi, and I sort of asked him all the questions. Really, I, I, When I approach a film like this, it's about me feeling I can do it and asking the questions that I feel are pertinent to that character, feeling I can inhabit that and make sure. So, uh, you know, I went with my list of questions and, and and just asked him, you know, uh, again, I keep going back to this theme of having huge talent like that and ego within faith, you know, well, what is that? The loss of self when you, there's an arrogance to Dovidil in the, and there is through the three of us, actually, I think I still retain some of that. Um, and it's to do with, you know, juggling that with being part of a community and loss of self and 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 sort of burying oneself in in the faith as opposed to the ego the, this you know did you grow up in a community of faith no so this is all kinds of weird for you no not weird no like uh no but it's different from yeah how i grew up had you ever played the violin before no and no, i don't think I, I don't think i want to again <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that took an awful, awful, yeah, awful lot of work. Yeah, your hands were moving really fast. I'm just like, how did he learn to do that? No, it was. It did take a lot of work. And uh, I ended up with a very funny relationship with a guy who taught me who was great and lovely, and I still see him, actually. But uh, because he was a solo violinist, he was obsessed by the details. And as we got closer, I started to realize more and more that we were concentrating so much on the specifics of which I'm never going to get anywhere near. You know, I need to be that. I needed shape. I needed, you know, you needed to be at the back of the auditorium and I needed to look like I was doing it. But yeah. the details were... But, yeah. But he was obsessed. So every time we try and work on the shape, it come in to to sort of examine the details. No, Oliver, please. Like, we have to now... We've got to shoot it. And, not, you know, film's a very practical thing. At the end of the day, you go in there and, you know, I was very... You know, I, I worked very closely with Francois about what he was going to shoot and how he was going to shoot so that I can know th what I need to give him, really. But he promised me at the beginning of the movie because I said, you know, that's a huge thing to take on. And he, he absolutely promised me to do as much as you can, but I promise I will make you look good. I promise it. So I trusted him and said, okay. Yeah, and it worked. You were completely transformed into both a Hasidic Jew and a virtuoso violin player. You're a very good Jew. <laughs> Clive Owen and Howard Shore, thank you so much. Uh, the Song of Names comes out December 25th, just in time for Christmas. Thank you. I can't tell you how sad I am to have missed that interview. Not only because it was so damned interesting, those gentlemen are so smart, but also because I would love to stare into his soulful eyes and now I'll never have the chance. But thank you guys for for being my shluchim, for doing it for me. I hope you would have asked more questions than yeah. I did. <laughs> Doubtful. Mazel tovs. Can I start, guys? Can I have the dispensation to start? Do yes, it. you may. All right, the first one. The first one is to our dear friend, Adina Pupko, who works at the Natan Foundation, which has been uh, not just a supporter, but really a partner. They really, they work with you. They help you. They they support you. They give you feedback. They're really a partner on the show. And Adina has been uh, terrific for Amazing. a couple years now. We're so fond of her. And we are so excited for her that at least if you were to believe the Facebook, uh, she is betrothed. She is engaged. There is a marriage coming up. And um, we look forward to our invitations. We look forward to crashing the wedding. We look forward, we look forward to-, to official what do you mean our invitations? Wedding. It's our wedding we're to just, perform. We're so excited for her and the, the Pupko Mishpucha that is, is going to be growing soon. I also want to add another Mazel Tov. This Mazel Tov is to a member of the J Crew whose name is Gwen Gethner. Now, Gwen came up to me after our uh, event and book signing at my home shul of Bethel Kesser Israel in New Haven uh, last weekend, which was so much fun. Um, and, and my congregants came out, but so did lots of people who aren't congregants. And Gwen was one of those people who, who came to the show. And um, she said, Mark, I know that your daughter Clara is a super big Harry Potter fan because I hear you talk about her. Um, I want to email her a trivia question and see if I can stump her. And I was like, that, she loves that. Like, that's the game she plays with, with her friends is like, stump me. And nobody can stump her. Gabriel Savit Woods was, was, could sometimes stump her when he lived on our street. I was like, look, but you can try her, right? So I gave her my personal email. I said, send this to me. And here's the trivia question she sent in. She wrote, dear Mark, nice to see you, blah, blah, blah. Here's the trivia challenge for my fellow Potter enthusiast, Clara and anyone else who's interested. In Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, what three items did Neville buy in an attempt to protect himself from the heir of Slytherin? Oh, I know this. To fill in mezuzah and the yarmulke? And a horcrux. Uh, 
Ahamsa, right? Best Gwen Gethner. So I sent it on to Clara, who has an email account. She seldom checks it. She has very little email business, but she checked it. And here is the amazing thing. She actually did stump Clara, who nobody stumps Clara, who's read each of the book 11 times. And Clara wrote back, oh, nice one. And that's a big compliment coming from me. I think you've got me stumped. And then she says, I, I know one of them. And she says what the one is. Um, and then she doesn't remember the other two. And then Clara writes back to her, okay, here's one for you. As a comeback, in the third book, Harry's on the night bus. There's a little wizard at the rear of the bus. He's muttering in his sleep. What does he mutter? And then Clara writes, you know, yours, Clara, P.S., my name is spelled with a K because Gwen had spelled it with a C. So anyway, the point is to Gwen Gethner for being one of only two or three people alive who has ever stumped Clara Oppenheimer on Harry Potter trivia, a hearty mazel tov to you. Amazing. I would like to offer a mazel tov to Rabbi Menachem Mendel Pevsner, uh, who is the Chabad rabbi in Geneva. Some of the Jake Renault, I just returned from a, a lovely jaunt to Switzerland. You know, it was Shabbat morning in a city I don't know very well. Just to have, this sounds totally cliched, but when you actually live through it, you realize how true it is. To have the opportunity to knock on the door of a Chabad shul, walk in, and immediately feel like you're in the most familiar, familial place in the world. It was just a delight. So, guys, thank you so much for the hospitality and a very delicious kiddish thereafter. So, I have a mazel tov to sort of close the loop on a burning question that the Jaku has been faced with. Ever since I sang the first bit of my Haftorah, everyone will remember, Rani Akara, Lo Yala Ade, which several cantors told me I sang wrong, okay. um, which means, of course, that the version I remember is wrong. And people said, you know, that, that there are actually two Rani Akaras. Which one did you have? And I said, I don't freaking know. Anyway, photo evidence has been procured of the program of my bat mitzvah. And it says... Ooh. Shabbat service, Saturday, September 9th, 2000, 9 Elul, 5760. Wow, TBT. Weekly portion, Kitetse. So we are confirming it for everyone. I, I was a Kitetse lady. But it also reminds me, so this actually comes from the, the Bloom family, who I shouted out a few episodes ago. I don't know, their, their family archive is insane. The things, they, they found my bat mitzvah, um, the yarmulkes that were given out of my bat mitzvah <laughs> recently. And I was just like, thank you for keeping this archive to not only your children, but also to me. But it reminds me that I shared my bat mitzvah with Rena Perlman. And I don't know what happened to her. Rena, if you're out there. Rena, if you're listening, Reach thanks out. for being part of the Jayku. And thanks to the Blooms. So you said 2000. I just want to say September 9th, 2000, was my sister Rachel's 12th birthday, which is to say that if we Oppenheimers were a bar and bat mitzvah having family, which we were not, that would have been the day on which she could have, for her 12th birthday, become a bat mitzvah. You actually have my sister's spiritual bat mitzvah day as your bat mitzvah. Mazel tov. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. If you want to leave a message for us that we might play on the air, call 914-570-4869. We often come to you live to book us or to advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross. That's J-K-R-O-S-S at tabletmag.com. Are you looking for Hanukkah gifts? Have you considered getting people some unorthodox goodies? You can go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt for very, very sexy and stylish unorthodox shirts, mugs, onesies, beer cozies, and so forth. Do your Hanukkah shopping at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Follow us on Instagram and on Twitter. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Alana Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger and our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton and rabbinic supervision this week 
by Rabbi Liana Moritz and all the rabbis of Jersey City, New Jersey. We come to you from Argo Studios. Shalom, friends. I mean, I know who you are, but that's, I would not have. I'll, I'll I would take that as a credits. huge compliment. I yeah, really do. Yeah, when I got that you're like, like, I watch it. Oh he passes. You were gunning for me yeah. then, were you? This way of speech. You know, this, this way of speech is, uh, you were gunning for me.